1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But
2: there's only one Mc Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Way, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farren, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Amy, um, have you listened to the podcast, The Sporkful?
0: That's the Food Podcast, right, with Dan Pashman?
3: Oh, I love it. It's so good. And this week, Dan Pashman is having one of my favorite all-time guests on the show, Uh, Alan Alda, who you might know from MASH, or the West Wing, or the Aviator. He's an award-winning actor, director, author. But here's the most interesting thing about him. He has studied how we communicate. Did you know that?
0: No, I thought you were going to say the most interesting thing about Alan Alda is you asked him for an autograph once when you were a kid. And he said?
3: <laughs> no. Alan Alda <laughs> denied me a harsh denial of a young child. I was uh, eating dinner with my grandma, and my grandma made me go over to talk to Alan Alda. I knew him from MASH, but I was trying to be cool. She's was like, go, go ask him for an autograph. And I went over, and he said, no. And that's the reason why his film Sleep Liberty bombed the box office people, because he denied a young <laughs> child. But I'm leaving all that on the floor and telling you to listen to him on The Sporkful this week as he talks about the role that food plays in communication.
0: Plus, Alan Alder's Alda's wife Arlene is going to join, and they're going to share the story about how they met. They meant eating rum cake off the floor. And by the way, this happened 60 years ago. 60 Whoa. 60 years ago. By the
3: way, if you were to tell me how did Alan Alda meet his wife, I would definitely have circled, like, eating rum cake off the floor. <laughs> that seems like the most Alan Alda specific of all time. Uh, maybe I should have dropped rum cake and he would have uh, autographed my uh, my little napkin.
0: You were in a restaurant. You could have run in and made one. Oh, damn it. Well, it's not too late for future children. <laughs> you can listen to this special episode of The Sporkful with Alan Alda wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Unspooled is brought to you by a new film classic, Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You, which was my favorite film I saw at this year's Sundance and is now opening in July. It's wild. It's basically like Michelle Gondry meets Spike Lee and it stars my personal favorite actor, Lakeith Stanfield, who I actually just profiled about this film in the Washington Post. It's awesome. I can't wait for you guys to see it. I will agitate for this film to be on the AFI list the next time they vote. (laughs) Wow. And, and you can see it in select theaters July 6th and everywhere July
3: 13th. You cannot get away from this movie. It has one of the best casts out there, Kate Berlant, Terry Crews.
0: Tessa Thompson.
3: Oh, Tessa Thompson's so, so good. So mark it down. No other movie in 2018 will come close to this one. The year, 1967. They're robbing. They're killing. They're the two cutest sociopaths we've ever done meet. They're Bonnie and Clyde. Everybody and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear.
0: I'm Amy Nicholson.
3: And you are listening to our podcast where we go through AFI's top 100 films of all time, the 2007 list. Now I'm going to take it away from Amy right here because she is currently in Kazakhstan at a film festival. I am here in the studio looking at all of your 2001 responses and they have been absolutely great. If you've not been following us on our Facebook group or Earwolf message boards or even on our Twitter account, you might have missed some great little gems that people have been finding. Uh, Edward B. Saul uh, found this great uh, little thing from uh, Arthur C. Clarke's original production diary. There's a lot of just little details throughout the entire thing. And he writes, May 31st, one hilarious idea we won't use, 17 aliens, featureless, Black Pyramids Riding in Open Cars Down Fifth Avenue, Surrounded by Irish Cops. Now, I know that that's without any context, but if that was seriously considered, what the hell is happening on that movie? Um, If that wasn't just a thrown-off thing he said behind a monitor while drinking a cup of coffee, I will be very, uh, very disturbed. Uh, One of the best parts of reading all your feedback was seeing that a lot of you tried 2001 for the first time and liked it or revisited it and kind of appreciated it on a different level. And uh, Taylor Ann Photo wrote uh, something about Hal. She said, I feel no empathy to Hal at all. I don't necessarily believe that he could feel things, but I attribute his feelings to more like someone we might classify as a sociopath. And in the end, when he keeps on repeating what he was afraid of, I didn't believe he was really afraid, but he knew he could play to Dave's empathy and that would save him. It was all about manipulation to get what he wanted, which was to live and continue his mission. Uh, well, there you go. Oh, That's a hot take on Hal. Now, last week, we asked you a very important question. Bonnie and Clyde, uh, an a, a iconic duo, uh, obviously in the film that we're about to talk about, played by uh, Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty, uh, an iconic pair. Who is your perfect pair? It could be anywhere. It could be from literature, music, whatever. You put them together. We want to hear it. Let's take a listen. Hey, guys. Tom from Santa Cruz here. I think it would be awesome if you had Jackie Gleason and Art Carney as the Honeymooners playing Bonnie and Clyde. I
0: think Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio would be awesome as Bonnie and Clyde. They're awesome in everything else.
1: Batman and Robin in Bonnie and Clyde. Ramo Brown and Jonathan Van Ness. More iconic duo, Jay-Z and Beyonce.
3: I think Simon Pegg and Nick Frost should star in a remake of Bonnie and Clyde. I would love to see a Bonnie and Clyde reboot starring the iconic duo of Rhea Butcher and Cameron Esposito.
0: I can't think of anyone more iconic at this point in time than Pete Davidson and Ariana Grande.
3: For my Bonnie and
2: Clyde movie, I'm casting Tonya Harding and Jeff Galulli.
3: Okay, I really don't care who plays Bonnie and Clyde, but I want Amy Ryan to play the Gene Hackman character. Those are amazing. Uh, I gotta say, I would see a Jay-Z, Beyonce a Bonnie and Clyde remake. Even if they just made a, like, an extra long music video, I think it would be amazing. Uh, Pete Davidson and Ariana Grande. Too soon, people. Too soon for them to be iconic. I do not agree. I love Pete. I love Ariana. I do not think they are, they are ready to take on the mantle just yet. Give them like six more months, please. Um, all right, let's uh, get into it. Amy and I talking about Bonnie and Clyde. Number 43 on the list Bonnie and Clyde. Amy, for people who cannot see this, which is everybody because it's a podcast, you are dressed right now as, uh, as Bonnie.
0: I didn't know you were going to wrap me up.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Of course. You have to. You are, you are in full Bonnie outfit. I have a, I have a Clyde hat, which I'll also wear. We'll take a picture. It doesn't fit over my headphones. Uh, but I love that you came dressed to the podcast.
0: You know, just because nobody can see us doesn't mean that you can't see me. Does that, that make English sense? No, it
3: does. Yeah, I can't see you.
0: <laughs> you can't see me. I am here. And I believe in being thematic as much as possible.
3: I love it. And it makes me believe that you love this movie. That If you have a, a Bonnie costume at the ready.
0: You, there's this thing that happens when you look at a woman and say, that is my style icon. And Faye Dunaway and Bonnie and Clyde. Just hands down. My God. If I could step into any human body on the planet.
3: I was like knocked out by... Her style, her look, it, it really took me off guard because, you know, I think you're used to seeing these people as they are now. I mean, I think most people think of Bonnie and Clyde as the two people who messed up the Oscars a couple years ago when they accidentally gave the wrong Academy Award to uh, La La Land uh, instead of Moonlight. Best
0: moment in Oscar history.
3: <laughs> but these are two of the sexiest people, especially at that time.
0: In one of the sexiest movies. This movie is so sex, even though it's about a guy who can't get it up and has to get up his gun.
3: I I mean, I was blown away just how the movie starts. Like, she's naked on a bed, we're tight on her face, her lips, everything is just popping and you're immediately in and there's no even dialogue at the beginning. You're just kind of existing with her, staring at her, and I feel like, She does the job of kind of getting you into the film.
0: Well, there's no dialogue, but there's so much information in that scene. You know, lots of times in movies you have a girl who wakes up and she's rolling around in bed and she's just beautiful. She already has like her whole makeup on. But this is a movie about a girl who's trying to be extra beautiful, who's looking at herself in a mirror, who's fixing her hair who's so beautiful and so bored and so restless. And then she gets in her bed, she starts pounding on the bars, and it looks like she's in a jail cell. And she's taking out her frustration on a bed, which is basically what she's going to be doing the whole movie because Clyde Barrow won't make love to her.
3: That whole impotent subplot of this film... Kind of just went over my head the first time I saw it. I think I saw it in high school. I didn't even understand that was a thing. And
0: you didn't think impotence was a thing?
3: I don't think I knew that much about sex in high school. I was probably a little bit more sheltered. Or at high school, I was like, that doesn't, that doesn't break. I didn't understand that these are things that happen to people. But
0: no, yeah, it, I've seen porkies. This is not <laughs> a real thing.
3: I mean, I just think that it's such an interesting uh, switch. This whole movie is giving you one thing and the minute you get comfortable with the one thing they're pulling it in a different direction and I want to talk about the beginning of this film like we said it's lips and it's the coke bottle they're just you know it's like
0: the way she's playing with that coke bottle on her lips is so erotic it's crazy her posturing like we're watching two people seduce each other in this scene I mean she is trying this giant put on act. I actually even want to play a little clip of it because the voice that we hear Bonnie putting on in this first scene is her just trying to impress the hell out of this guy who she doesn't know but he's the most exciting thing she's ever seen.
3: Because he was trying to steal her car.
2: (laughs) I'm going to work anyway.
3: you
1: going to work,
2: huh? Yeah. What
1: kind of work you do?
2: None of your business.
1: I bet you're a movie star. (laughs) Uh, A lady mechanic? No. Maid?
0: What do you think I am? a waitress. Ugh, he nails it. And you just see her act deflate a little bit. She puts it back on for a minute again. She starts walking with her pelvis out in the next scene with playing with the Coke bottle. But he's on to her from the beginning that this is a girl who's desperate for some fun.
3: Well, they also seemingly come from the same background. They're both putting on these airs. Like, I think the sense that I get from the film is, Without each other, there would be no Bonnie and Clyde. It's not like she's not along for the ride as much as he's creating the ride so she will come along with him. Like, you know, you know, he robs that first general store really to just impress her. Like, he doesn't seem like a mastermind criminal. As a matter of fact, one of the things I was surprised about in this film is how funny it is. Like, these are for lack of a better term, morons, right? They're dummies. Like, they're a little bit dumb. And yes, they may have these moments of being, uh, like, clever, like what we just heard, like, you're a waitress. But, and I, I don't know if this is a derogatory term, but they're like hicks. They're just sort of, but they're they're trying to be better than themselves.
0: Yeah, these are people who have, maybe if they had grown up in Hollywood, she would definitely be trying to be an actress. I mean, that's Absolutely. hands down her plan. And yeah, talking about him playing off of her or him kind of building off of her, how he wouldn't exist if not for the way that she was playing him. The bank robbery they do right after that, the bank doesn't have any money and he makes the teller go out to tell her that the bank has no money just so she doesn't take it out on Clyde, just so she doesn't think Clyde couldn't handle it. Exactly. It's like he needs a permission slip to not rob this
3: bank. It is such a funny juxtaposition of images because Again, you're thinking Bonnie and Clyde, oh, this is about these mastermind, you know, bank robbers, and they live this exciting life. And everything I knew about the film was kind of totally put askew because this movie really fluctuates through extreme violence. Um, We talked about, like, the very sexy nature of the film. Then just really broad comedy, that music, that, like, um, that kind of hillbilly. hillbilly, Yeah. That music is amazing, and it's such a juxtaposition to what you're seeing throughout the film. And
0: well, what you're talking about, I think, is mythology. Like Bonnie right. and Clyde are an American myth, this like in love couple that ran across the country, robbing tons of banks, left behind real photos that were just them making out, kissing, her looking glamorous, him looking glamorous, hanging out with a glamorous gang of other beautiful criminals. I mean, we looked up to them for a minute in the 30s because they were doing what everybody wanted to do. And then the public tide on Bunny and Clyde turned because they started killing way too many cops and they become unpopular. So the myth changed again. And then this movie comes out that presents the myth one more time. But then, like you're saying, just undermines it the whole way. I mean, they look like the coolest couple in the world, but it doesn't make it look like we should all be criminals.
3: Well, it's interesting because the movie that I think about when I was watching this film, and I'm sure this argument has been made a million times, is Natural Born Killers. Mm-hmm. It has a similarity in tone. It's, you know, they are, they're not the smartest, but they're doing, they're they're fueled by this. I mean, True Romance has an element of this as well. I mean, I think that's a movie I'm much more familiar with. And the idea that like, they are feeding off each other. They're not really supposed to be doing this, but they're trying to find an outlet to make their lives have more meaning. Yeah,
0: even even Heather's. In fact, Heather's even name checks Bonnie and Clyde.
3: But we're not going to be using blanks this
0: time. You can't be serious.
3: Yeah.
0: Listen, my Bonnie and Clyde days are over. But what's going on here, I think, is we're looking at generations. You know, natural-born killers, true romance, Heathers, these are all people who grew up loving Bonnie and Clyde. And then the people who made Bonnie and Clyde are the people whose parents were actually alive when Bonnie and Clyde happened.
3: So it's interesting about this film because it's historical to a point, and people seeing this film may have lived through this or heard about this, and then there are other kids that are going to see it for the first time who are idolizing this and never have heard this story because it's sort of the myth versus the reality.
0: Exactly. Arthur Penn, I think, was maybe in elementary school, the director of Bonnie mm-hmm. and Clyde, when Bonnie and Clyde went down. Faye Dunaway hadn't been born yet. Warren Beatty hadn't been born yet, but they were about to be born. But the people who survived all of the Bonnie and Clyde shootouts were actually alive to judge the film, which we'll probably get into it in a little bit. But yeah, I think it's so important to remember that in 1967, 1933, 1934 is not ancient history. You know, it's like us making a movie about 1980. It's, it's, we do that. It's a total. It's a totally 100%. normal
3: thing. Well, what do you think is so enduring about these characters? I mean, I think to me, I see them as the representation of what we all are. We want to get out of our small towns. We want to be known. I think the driving force of this film is they want fame. They don't want violence. The money that they're even getting is small. It's it's nothing, but they want to be known. And and you know one of the most exciting parts in the film for the characters is when the uh, when Bonnie's poem is published, and they are like they are finally they've they've made it. And that's the moment where Warren Beatty, his character's not impotent any longer because he's. He's achieved this greatness. It's in the paper. I think that, the, you know, it's it's an amazing universal theme.
0: Yeah, I love that scene where Bonnie's poem gets published because Bonnie is a girl who maybe should have been a writer. She's passionate about it. We see her writing about it in earlier scenes. No one cares. No yeah. one wants to hear her write. But this is a thing she could have done in an alternate life. And it's so beautiful to see her get that recognition. But also Faye Dunaway's performance is so good in that Every time Bonnie Parker's name is just in the paper for other stuff, even for bank robbing, you see her puff up a little bit. They say she has yellow hair and she's grooming her hair. She's so excited to be known, to be famous, to be recognized in a way that almost reminds me of, you know, troll culture where people are like, it's a badge of honor that a celebrity yelled at me on Twitter.
3: It's that idea of like your Instagram life versus your real life. When they pose in front of that car— they put on an air that is not who they are in the film. And, you know, you see her put the cigar in and then kind of pose with her, her leg up with the Tommy gun. And then
0: and, when she takes the cigar out, she kind of retches. She's like, yeah. that's so gross. And <laughs> actually, that happened. Like, the real Bonnie kind of regretted the cigar pose because every time she would, say, like, capture a cop and yell at him for a little bit, she'd say, go home and tell them I don't smoke cigars. <laughs> I mean, women didn't really smoke cigarettes back then in public. So her smoking that cigar in a newspaper, it was like a holy shit, oh, my God, it's almost like she got a tattoo kind of thing.
3: You know, I think one of the things about this film and doing some research about it as well is it really took this thing that was happening overseas and brought it to America. You know, it's showing people in ways that we're not used to seeing it. And I think Bonnie and Clyde were doing that in real life, and this movie then kind of ups the ante and says, well, here are people who are doing things that you, we never saw, smoking a cigar in the paper, and now we're gonna show you something in a movie about them that you've never seen. I'm not very familiar with, like, French New Wave, but I, I think that that's what a lot of people say. This is a very French New Wave film. As a matter of fact, they first went to Truffaut and Goddard to direct this film, like, before they went to Arthur Penn. Uh, and it's
0: wild that they wanted to do that with an iconic American couple about America in a really specific American time, which can happen. You know, Ang Lee made some of the best movies about American cowboys. Like, people can bring new yeah. perspectives. You don't have to have an American do an American film. But it is funny that the reason they did not go with Goddard is Goddard wanted to shoot the movie in New Jersey in the winter. (laughs) And they're like, no, this is about Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, you know, my my train of the country. And he got mad and he said, I'm talking about cinema and you're talking weather. Goodbye. (laughs)
3: It and, and, by the way, that's the most perfectly French thing to do. Also, to shoot it in New Jersey in the middle of winter makes no sense. It makes me feel like he didn't want to direct it, but he's like, if you do something ridiculous, I'll do it. It's sort of like yeah. I will uh, do
0: Yorvan and <laughs> Clyde, but can they be giraffes <laughs> living in— a supermarket? <laughs>
3: well, you know, the the writers of this film, too, were not screenplay writers. They were reporters. They wrote for Esquire. And when they were putting together this film, they pulled a lot of different research in. And one of the other things that kind of has been excised from the film was not that um, Warren Beatty's character was impotent, but that he was bisexual. And Warren Beatty uh, talked about this. He was like, I have no problem being bisexual, but I believe— that if we show that, you know, I am bisexual and that I can only kind of be erect and aroused when I'm in this three-way with uh, Michael Pollard's character, uh, C.W. Moss, who is amazing. I love him in Scrooged. He's amazing in this.
0: Oh, uh, he is the guy in Scrooge. Oh, yeah.
3: It, one of the best scenes where they're talking about <laughs> where they mistake him for for Richard Burton and then basically Bill Murray does like this crazy Richard Burton impression. It's an amazing scene. I I love Scrooge. Um so they were gonna have this three way, but I think at the end of the day they all decided that because they were doing such heinous crimes, that then should show them being quote-unquote, like, sexual perverts would make you feel less sympathetic to the characters, which is an interesting choice. But That's I was- true.
0: That kind of reminds me of Monster, people being like, it's interesting that you have Charlize Theron win an Academy Award for playing a lesbian, which is great, but it's also a lesbian who murders a bunch of people.
3: It shows you how far we've come, too. Um-
0: but I feel like you can see traces of that still. You know, there's that scene where where Bonnie wakes up in bed, and they're snoring, and you see C.W. Moss in the background, You see Warren Beatty in the front, and you realize she's sleeping in between the two men, but in the most unsexy way, yet you still get this idea of intimacy in the three of them.
3: I wanted to ask you about that scene. So he's snoring very loudly, and then as she kind of checks in on him and goes back to sleep, he opens his eyes. So he's just basically hiding from being intimate from her. Like, I mean, that's basically his whole... His whole thing is, I can never let her get close to me. We can, we always have to be around people. Like, part of the gang, I think, was to keep her away sexually.
0: Yeah, doesn't it feel like he's adding these human walls between them, basically? Like yeah. a human shield. Like, we can't have sex. My brother's right there.
3: Exactly. Yeah, C.W. Moss is in the room with us.
0: And it seems to make her so much angrier. I mean, I think half of why she hates Blanche, who is the sister-in-law, of Warren Beatty, she's married to Warren Beatty's brother, Gene Hackman. It's that Gene Hackman. It's yep. young Gene Hackman. By
3: the way, that's two for us in Gene Hackman world. We've seen two Gene Hackman movies at this point.
0: What up, Hackman? Who's he is gonna now be the winner?
3: Who do you think will be the most viewed actor on this list? I wonder. I think Gene Hackman definitely has a shot at it.
0: I think he does. For a second, I almost wondered if we should throw uh, Faye Dunaway in the mix because don't we have also Network and Chinatown?
3: Oh, yeah, interesting. Okay, yeah. So this will be it'll be interesting to see who keeps on yeah. popping up in these films.
0: Oh, but anyways, I think part of why she really escalates this hatred of Blanche is because Blanche is in love and Blanche is getting laid. And she sees this other happy couple snuggling, and it just seems to make her furious on the inside. It makes her feel even more of a phony.
3: Can we just talk about Estelle Parsons for a second? She plays Blanche in this movie. And I wrote down, just in my notes here, before I had done any research on the movie, I was like, I love Blanche because she's doing so much with very little dialogue. I mean, you know, she's reacting a lot. She's the least cool member of the gang and seemingly doesn't want to be in the gang and is so comparatively unsexy next to Faye Dunaway. Um,
0: Which is so unfair because the real Blanche was apparently a total babe, like much prettier than Bonnie.
3: Well, you know that she sued Warner Brothers.
0: No, I knew that she said that this Blanche made her look like, quote, a screaming horse's ass.
3: Oh, no. She sued Warner Brothers because she says, I was the same age as Bonnie Parker. I was arguably better looking than her. She was. And she, she looked like Gina Davis. And she says, and I was not a preacher's daughter. And I had married Buck knowing full well he was an escaped prisoner and twice divorced. Like She took it to the court, uh, which makes me go like, <laughs> she is cool as shit. I mean, the real Blanche is pretty cool.
0: Wait, I have a tiny thing I've never done before. Okay. I want to do a pop quiz on you, mister. Oh, man. All right. Because there is one thing that Blanche does constantly in this movie, which is scream. Oh, yeah. Her scream reminds me of somebody. Her scream reminds me of Jessica Walter playing Lucille Booth whenever Lucille Booth sees Gene Parmesan. And I want to play two screams for you. And I want to see if you can guess who is Lucille Booth and who
3: is Blanche. Okay. Those are surprisingly similar. <laughs> I believe that I do know the answer that the second one is uh, Blanche Barrow. Am I right?
0: It is indeed Blanche Barrow. By the way, Estelle Parsons, I'm going to pour a little bit on my red yeah. out for Estelle Parsons because she's also known right now for playing Roseanne's mom on the Roseanne show. Ooh. She's Beverly Harris, the snobby mother who did come back for the show and now is out of a job.
3: Well, I mean— I have no fear that she is going to be lacking for work. I mean, she's been on Broadway. She's winning Tony's. I will say one of the choices, we talked about the Scream, the whole reason why she is so panicky was because Arthur Penn, the director, wanted her to be as hysterical as possible so it makes Bonnie look even cooler. That was a, a very conscious choice. And I think it's manipulating, again, this this uh, mythology of these two characters.
0: It definitely works. And also, it sets us up to really enjoy watching Blanche learn to kind of like being a criminal. You know, she gets her sunglasses on. She's kind of proud of her sunglasses. She starts to swagger a little bit. She wears jodhpurs in one of her last scenes when the cops find them again when they're hiding out for the millionth time because they're the worst hiders ever, (laughs) which actually is a true detail because it was so strange at the time for a girl to wear pants in public that everybody in town was like, there's a woman wearing pants. And years (laughs) after Bonnie and Clyde were over, that was the main thing they remembered is, oh yeah, that woman was wearing pants.
3: Wow, that's... That's fascinating. I mean, it feels like again, they they don't shy away, I think, from showing all sides of criminals. It's they're they're not that cool. We're not dealing with The Ocean's 11 of crime. I mean, I think a lot of the times, I mean, if you read anything uh titled The Florida Man, you know that people are just sometimes <laughs> flying by the seat of their pants committing insane crimes.
0: It makes you wonder why we have all these badass movies about badass people because this movie's terrific and they're not badasses. So why is it that whenever anybody writes an action movie they're like He's the coolest guy in the room, man. He's yeah. always hitting the targets. He always wins. Like, that's boring.
3: Well, you can show someone like, you know, uh, like Clyde was an expert marksman. And the reason why they were killed so violently was because cops knew he could work any gun and he was an amazing sharpshooter. They show that in the film. You can be an amazing sharpshooter. You can be impotent. And you can also be not incredibly smart. <laughs> but can incredibly. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> that's, by the way, a poster that I'm putting up of Warren Beatty. You can be a sharpshooter. Shooter, you can be impotent, and you can be a real dum-dum. You um, can
0: link them both together by having a girl sexually caress your gun.
3: Amy, there's a lot of people out there that want to get their goods on you, but what about goods that feel good on your goods? All right, I'm talking about a company that has smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping it's the one, the only, Mack Weldon. The most comfortable underwear, socks, t-shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. That's a lot of comfortable things, and I have worn many of them. And I'm going to tell you, they're fucking comfortable.
0: I will say, I have bought a pair of Mack Weldon underwear for a special dude in my life. Yes. He considers them his special underwear. He looks forward to the day of the week when he decides that's the day he's going to put on his bright orange Mac Weldons.
3: The Mac Weldon fabric, I will tell you... It does something to your like that part of your body. It's not used to being treated so nicely. It's coarse down there, like other underwear is treated coarse. Mac Weldon's like, hey, come on in. We just cleaned up the place. It's a nice pair of underwear. Is what I'm saying. So it's perfect. Also, their like uh, their sweatpants actually look good, and their t-shirts are great. So whether you're working out, going to work, or going out on dates, or just everyday life, Mac Weldon has an article of clothing that will look good on you. Plus, their socks. Uh, Primo. Also, Um, this
0: is a good time to say that it's summer, so if you're feeling sweaty, they got a line of what they call quote-unquote silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial. That means you don't smell bad.
3: That's amazing that they can wick away the smell. Uh, So all of you in those southern cities or New York in August, get some of these silver underwear. Uh, If you don't like your first pair, you can keep it. And they will refund you. No questions asked. I'm glad they don't take back the underwear. That's a really respectful thing. Um, But I'll tell you, I am a big fan of these underwear. They're comfortable. They are fun to wear. And now that I know that they take away smells, I'm all on it. All right? For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter the promo code UNSPOOL. That's the podcast title here. Unspooled. That's U-N-S-P-O-O-L-E-D. At checkout, that's MacWeldon.com. And enter the promo code UNSPOOL to checkout for 20% off your first order. Hey everybody, it's Paul. Uh, We're going to take a brief break right here to talk with the writer of Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, I was away shooting a movie and Amy sat down with Robert Benton to kind of find out a little bit more about this amazing film. So take it away, Amy.
0: Well, it is my extreme honor to be sitting down right now with Robert Benton, the co-screenwriter of Bonnie and Clyde. And I'm just grinning from ear to ear. Hello,
2: Robert. Hello, and I am grinning from ear to ear, likewise. Okay, to be with you.
0: <laughs> well, I have so many things I want to ask you, and I just want to plunge in. And what, whatever. Okay, well. Whatever. Let's just talk about Texas. Let's just talk about Texas. Well, let's talk about Texas. You are from Texas. You are from Wax- Waxahachie, Texas.
2: Yes, I was born in Dallas and then raised in Waxahachie.
0: Which, when I looked up, that's really close to where Bonnie and Clyde killed their second victim. That was in Hillsboro, yes, Texas. Hillsborough, yes. So, growing up, did you know people who kn- knew about Bonnie and Clyde? Did they talk I, about it?
2: They were h- huge folk heroes. On Halloween, kids would dress up as Bonnie and Clyde, girls would have chocolate cigars in their mouth, and they would go from house to house with, with fake guns and say, you know, trick-or-treat. My father, who was the most law-abiding person in the world, who had two brothers, both of whom were murdered, read true detective magazines all the time, and there were all these stories about Bonnie and Clyde. They, were, they, they had a great story. They weren't as large as Dillinger or Pretty Boy Floyd, but they were, in, te- in that world, everybody knew them and revered them, even though they were outlaws.
0: Wow, even though they might have killed people that people knew.
2: They had that selective vision that, I'm afraid, people in Texas have. And it was that what they remembered is the robbing of the banks. And what they remembered is they were poor people who took life into their own hands. And they were folk heroes. When the new wave began to break in, in the United States and movies like Jules and Jim and 400 Blows and Shoot the Piano Player or Breathless were enormous influences on American film. And at that time, American film was sort of moribund. There was not, there were good directors working, but there was not a lot of inspiring pictures that were being done. I think I saw Jules and Jim, I don't know, 15 times, 20 times. And I saw, I mean, and that's we in the just theater, kept going, that's going back to see. That's going the theater. See, yes, and then at some point, My partner and I, we decided to write a screenplay. We decided to write a a French screenplay set in the United States.
0: And you were magazine writers.
2: I was an art director of Esquire, and he was an editor at Esquire. And and if he had known that I couldn't spell or punctuate, he might have rethought the partnership. (laughs) But at that time, a a young writer named Peter Bogdanovich later became a very well-known director. The day we started to write it, we were friends, and he called and said, Come over t- to the screening room at the Museum of Modern Art, I'm screening rope. Mm-hmm. So we went, we dropped software, and we went over there and we watched rope, and we came back. And, and rope, and for
0: people who haven't seen it, is Hitchcock's kind of it, fake it, it, single take. The
2: single take. one. It was one single take. As it was a, he, he loved to set himself problems and, and, and ingeniously get out of them. It's like Houdini getting locked in a trunk and dropped into the ocean and figuring out how, that's what that was a sort of. MO for, for Hitchcock. And there is a scene in Bonnie and Clyde. This directly, comes directly out of Hitchcock. There's a, there's a scene in which Bonnie and Clyde and Buck and Blanche and C.W. are sitting around with nothing bored on a, on a, in a garage apartment. And we deliberately said, you look out the window and they don't see, but you see the Sheriff's Department out there. So you're ahead of them. The, the, a lot of Hitchcock's films had to do with knowing when to be ahead of the main characters. And so we that we wrote that scene directly influenced by by Hitchcock. We had some readings of the of the treatment to see how it would play. Two evenings of, of readings. And at one of those screenings was a woman named Helen Scott. In those days, Helen Scott was the head of the French Film Office. She was a dear friend of Truffaut's. In fact, if you look at the Truffaut Hitchcock book, she's the one who's doing the translating.
0: Oh, oh, yeah, Uh, I have that book at home. You would just
2: turn on the flag, there's a picture of Helen. And she heard it, and she liked it very much, and she sent, she asked for a copy and sent it to Truffaut. He had it translated into French. So he came over... To the United States and sat with us, with Helen acting as translator, and went through the script and gave us the first and almost the only lessons we ever had in screenwriting.
0: How are you feeling at this moment? That this is the filmmaker who you adore, and he's talking to you about your first screen? I'd be part. I part of me would be nervously dying, worried I'd make a, a bunch of mistakes and look like a fool.
2: We know we we were. It's so naive. We thought, well, this is how it's supposed to be. <laughs>
0: You had the plan to make a film before you decided it would even be about Bonnie, Bonnie and yes. Clyde. How did you decide on them?
2: We were reading, by chance, we were reading a book by a, a wonderful writer named John Toland about John Dillinger. And in it, there was a footnote about Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow that said, they were not only outlaws, they were outcasts. And this, suddenly I began to remember all the stories I'd heard about Bonnie and Clyde. They were such losers, they were so appealing. And um, we found a book called Fugitives. We used that as a, as a basis. Now, what was wrong about that, and I didn't realize so much afterwards, is that they both hated Blanche. They just hated Blanche, and Blanche was actually terrific. And I think we made Blanche too much of a comic character. And as Parsons was wonderful.
0: And she got a reward And she got a
2: reward for it. But I think I think that it, as writers, we did Blanche and Injustice.
0: Well, it's interesting also to hear you talk about Bonnie and Clyde almost as though they'd been forgotten, because thanks to your movie, I grew up in a time where they were very famous. Probably now I'd say they're more famous than Dillinger.
2: But they were, what was he? sometimes if you're writing, a, if you're thinking about writing a swim and you find somebody who's got a good story who's been forgotten, that's like a gift from God. You know, if they were famous, then it's no sense in telling that story again. But by finding people who've forgotten, you can tell as much of the truth about them as you want to. Nobody, nobody, nobody would buy this movie, considering Why? one ma- I, they hated it. Critics hated it when it came out. Finally, one Saturday morning, I'd just gotten married, The phone rang, and it was Warren Beatty. Now, I would known Warren through some other friends. And he said, I hear you've got this script. I'd like to read it. So I said, fine, I'll drop it off at your, I'm so used to people turning it down, but you have to be polite to people. So I said, fine, I'll, um, I'll drop it off at your hotel room. He said, no, that's okay, I'll come by. And I thought, well, he's an actor, he'll come by at two in the afternoon. This was nine o'clock on a Saturday morning. And I made the biggest mistake of my married life. I didn't tell my wife that Warren Beatty was on his way over. <laughs> and she it was Saturday morning, she had no makeup. Her hair was in rollers. She was wearing one of my old shirts. The doorbell rang. She thought it was a super. She answered the doorbell, and there was Warren Beatty. If <laughs> she could have killed me, she would have. he I gave him the script. And he called back the afternoon and said, I, I'd like to do it.
0: Is it true that Warren Beatty had to literally crawl on his hands and knees to convince the studio to finance?
2: That's the story. I love that. It's just, that's the only thing, print the legend. Uh, I've heard it was true. I've heard it wasn't true, but I, well, I choose to believe it's true.
0: <laughs> well, tell me about even before this, tell me about your research trip where you and David Newman drove through Texas to retrace Bonnie and Clyde and to learn more about it as you were writing the project. We
2: took a train to Chicago and then from Chicago to Dallas rented a car in Dallas drove to Walkside to see my family and then drove around Texas because he needed to know that Texas wasn't that thing that was in movies which is to confuse Texas with Arizona and, and it was very helpful to be to know that, to meet the people and to see the terrain
0: yeah people don't get Texas right in movies they never do no uh,
2: they just don't his first screening was in the Montreal Film Festival. Helen Scott went to that festival and she said the audience loved it. She said, and she wasn't, she wasn't one to lie about things like that. She said the audience really loved it, but all the critics hated it. And what happened is that word of mouth kept that movie running. The critic for Wall Street Journal, Joe Morgenstern, went to the and he hated it. Hated it. And his wife, who was an actress, saw it after him and said, Are you crazy? This is a wonderful And he went back and, re- and did the most courageous thing any critic I've ever known has done. He rewrote his review and changed his mind. And that took such guts. And I've always admired him so much, not just for giving it a good review, but, but the fact that he was really a man of enormous character to have done that.
0: Had it's, you believed in it so strongly that whole three years? Is yes. that what kept you?
2: Yes. I, I really, I David and I both believed that it was a really fine movie, but Billy Ryan, really fine screenplay, and, and, and that it could make a really great movie. But we were very lucky that we got Arthur Penn. Arthur Penn was the perfect director for it, and his working relation with Warren, although sometimes fraught, was an enormously productive relationship.
0: What made Arthur so perfect?
2: Because he understood the style of the film. That a lot of the film wasn't just the subject matter, but was the style. A lot of any film isn't just the subject matter; it is the style that you approach the film with. Uh, I just saw *Pygmalion*, the early nineteen thirty-eight. Doolittle when Henry Higgins and um, the guy, he Colonel, whatever it is or in Covent Garden, and they see Eliza Doolittle selling flowers, and and they stand there talking about her like they're at the ASBC talking about an animal in a cage. And in the middle of it, there's a shot, a close-up of Wendy Hiller, and there's, in this moment, there's a feral canniness that you see in her that makes her not a victim for the rest of the picture. It's so easy to make her... Uh, a victim that is finally proven right. But in this case, it's that one shot that tells you she can take as much as she can deal out. There may be movies that are not great but have in them great moments. And there should be a special category for, for those films.
0: I agree. There should be another list for that.
2: Yes, there should be.
0: <laughs> with Bonnie and Clyde, you write the great American antiheroes. And then you write Superman, the great American hero.
2: We had done a musical that flopped on Broadway called Superman, and it was it came out late March. Our son was born on April twentieth, and the day I went to take cigars to the theater, you know, they said everybody's going on half salary. It's not. It's got no audience.
0: In our superhero moment, the idea that a superhero play I, wouldn't do well on yeah, Broadway go is go blowing ahead. my mind.
2: I don't know. Things just didn't work out. And when they asked us to do Superman, it was a it was a novel by Mario Puzo that we were to translate. So we did that.
0: Mario Puzo famously of The Godfather.
2: Yes. And it was fun. We had a nice time we worked and we did the script and then I went off the best line, I love Superman. I love the movie of Superman very much. The best moment and the best line in the movie is when Sue Grant first catches Lois Lane falling off the top of the Daily Planet building he says don't worry I got you and she says I know you got me but who's got you (laughs) I know I didn't write that either David wrote it or Leslie wrote it or Tom Mankiewicz but I didn't write it and I thought Dick Donner did a fabulous job on that picture I mean a really good job on that picture I can't imagine uh, that movie being any better than it was
0: what makes an iconic Hollywood hero?
2: It is if you can make him or her human. If, they don't, if you give them some dimension or some wit, they're not just two-dimensional cardboard figures with sequence on them. They're, 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 there has to be some moment where they are unexpectedly human.
0: Well, Robert, I have loved getting to meet you in human form after knowing your movie is my whole life. This
2: is not human form. (laughs) (laughs) This is not This is is, You pass the test with it. Sooner or later, you get to meet me in human form.
0: (laughs) Robert, thank you again for coming on Unspooled. It just means the world to us.
2: I, I had such a good time. You are so good to talk to
3: So, Amy, we are a brand-new podcast, and uh, we know a lot of podcasts out there, and people are always asking, how can we support, how can we help the show? And um, it's very simple. There's a lot that you can do, and here's one. You can subscribe to the show, right? So that means you'll never miss an episode, and you can leave a review for us in Apple Podcasts. That actually helps our show a lot. As a Um, critic,
0: I find the idea of people writing reviews really touching. I
3: know. That is really nice. You know what? Look at that. You get to see, like, you get to use your journalistic instincts to kind of come in and support the show. You can also share an episode on Facebook or Twitter or tell a friend about it. Just don't, you know, steal your friend's phone and subscribe for them. We do not condone that. But oh, I mean,
0: if you give it back.
3: I mean, if you give it back. It's not a deal. We're not going to rat you out it's fine, What's well, right? this
0: podcast? Oh, it's great. Whoa, whoa. Okay, thanks, Alan.
3: <laughs> and you know what really helps us as well? Uh, following our mothership, which is Earwolf, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, you'll never miss our podcast. You'll get extra kind of bonus content and pictures and all sorts of cool stuff. Um, and it's important just to kind of stay active because that – Helps us sell ads, and helping us sell ads makes us stay on the air, and that's the way the system works. We're a part of it now. You need to be a part of it too. Plus, if you got a couple bucks in your in your wallet every couple of months, and uh, you can sign up for uh, such a premium, and that way, uh, every show that you listen to, they get a little piece of your money. You don't get charged more for listening; the more you get, one price fits all. But uh, it helps all the shows. Plus, you get uh, all of the archives, bonus episodes, and. Uh, ad-free episodes. It's great.
0: It's a lot. I don't even know how many podcasts you have in your archives yeah. of How Did This Get Made. I got so many podcasts of the canon in the archives. You
3: probably have so many. I mean, we have about almost 200 episodes of How Did This Get Made, and I think only 50 of them live outside of the uh, the Stitcher Premium thing.
0: So use the promo code Unspooled, and you can get a free month of Stitcher when you sign up right now.
3: So subscribe, share, follow, and you will see that it will make a big difference for us. Subscribe, share, or follow, and thank you for listening. Wow, that was an awesome interview. And now, back into me and Amy. I want to talk about this in a larger way because I liked this movie a lot, but I think one of the things that left me wanting or not feeling like I loved this movie was the fact that this movie at the time broke boundaries, but now it feels passe to a certain extent and, it, and and that idea of like culturally speaking, like what it did and does it hold up, I don't know because we've gone past it. this was this broke the wall open and this is an interesting argument about the list. is is it on the list because it holds up or is it on the list because It just was the first one there.
0: Right. You're feeling the same way about this as I was about French Connection.
3: 100%.
0: Yeah, where we've just seen this get copied and copied and copied. Like, I love Natural Born Killers. I love Heathers. I love all of the the ones I grew up with that were my films first before I saw Bonnie and Clyde.
3: Absolutely. And I think um, Morgan Fairchild actually puts it into a great uh, perspective. Did you know that Morgan Fairchild was the stand-in? For Faye Dunaway. No yes, yeah, so here she is talking a little bit about the cultural impact of the film.
1: People now are so used to these gory slasher films and so much worse violence that it's hard to see Bonnie and Clyde in the in the prism. Uh, of the way it would seem at that time, to see them riddled with bullets, even before The Wild Bunch. I mean, this was just incredibly graphically violent for the time and created a big stir when the movie came out. Now, kids look at it and it would probably seem pretty tame. But back then, it wasn't. That was another way that it was cutting edge, is introducing a bit more reality uh, oriented violence into films.
3: Yeah, so that was something that I feel like now understanding where it falls. It's interesting, but at the same time, it feels a little, a little tame. And I think the things I was attracted to more was the juxtaposition of comedy and violence. But that is also something that – there's so many films like that. I mean, Crank is an amazing example of – I do, too. Oh, it's so good.
0: Crank, too. <laughs> well, I mean, to that point, maybe this is a good segue to talk about old film reviews for a second. Okay, yeah. Because Bonnie and Clyde, when this movie shows up in 1967 – It's so new and it's so raw that it creates a schism in the film critic world. And, like, a critic loses his job over it. A major critic, who we're going to come across, I'm sure, many times over the 100 episodes that we're doing, the New York Times' is. Bosley Crowther, he hated Bonnie and Clyde. He thought it was horrible, 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 horrible. He hated the, the violence. He called it, quote, a cheap piece of bald-faced slapstick comedy, a ridiculous camp-tinctured travesty, and as pointless as it is lacking in taste. And he pulled a turan. He wrote negative stuff about it week after week. He got a bunch of reader hate mail about it. And, and the New York Times was like, maybe it's time we retire, this 62-year-old guy, and he shouldn't be reviewing our movies anymore because he's out of step.
3: Well, it is interesting, though, because he wasn't the only one that wasn't supporting the movie. I mean, the studio behind Bonnie and Clyde didn't even support it. There's a great story. Jack Warner, who was running the studio, at the end of the first screening said, that was the longest two hours and 11 minutes I've ever seen. That was a real three-piss picture.
0: I'm sorry, three pisses, two hours and 11 minutes? Is he sick? (laughs)
3: <laughs> apparently Jack Warner uh, dictated a movie's worth by how many times he had to get up and go to the bathroom. He got up within the first hour and they all knew, uh-oh, it's bad. And uh, I just love that he judges movies by piss-taking, but he believed that, you know, this gangster stuff went out with James Cagney. He wasn't supportive of the film at all. You know, no one believed in this movie at all. Uh, Warner Brothers even offered Beatty a ridiculous deal, which was a $200,000 salary plus 40% of the gross. 40% of the gross. Not the net. The film made over $50 million. This movie single-handedly made Warren Beatty into one of the most successful producer, actor, writers in Hollywood. Um, I mean,
0: so successful, just to put him in context, is that he is the only person besides Orson Welles at Citizen Kane who has been nominated for acting, directing, writing, and producing the same film, and he did it twice. Orson Welles only did it once. Not this film, but Heaven Can Wait in Red.
3: It's amazing, and I feel like we're finding a trend here with all these films, that they come out, they're not well-received, and then they seep into the consciousness and— then they are so tremendously received. I mean, this movie did so well overseas that they brought it back to the States and essentially re-released it.
0: Yeah, there's something about these movies that maybe they were just right ahead of their time and then Mm -hmm. the time caught up. Like, I don't want to read too much of this review because I think it's like 70,000 words long.
3: Okay, wow. But
0: Pauline Kill my hero, Mm -hmm. wrote the definitive review of Bonnie and Clyde, where she put it into a bunch of context. She defended it. She said that this was a really important movie. And her defense of this movie is what made a lot of other critics turn around because Bosley Crowther wasn't the only one who hated it. Like Joe Morgenstern, who wrote for Newsweek at the time, who now writes for the Wall Street Journal, who I love. Joe Morgenstern is the most talented ever. He's one of the only critics who has a Pulitzer. He's my hero. He saw it. He hated it. And then a week later, he totally changed his mind and he reviewed it again. And Time Magazine did the same thing. Their critic hated it, and so they just changed critics, and they had a different critic review it and put it on the cover. And it's a lot of because of what Pauline Kael said. And I'm actually going to take two quotes from her review of Bonnie and Clyde that are about Bonnie and Clyde, but I think they apply to stuff we're going to be talking about this whole series. I think they're just such a framework for how to look at movies as an audience member and as a critic. The first is she was talking about the extreme violence, and she said, you know, quote, people feel uncomfortable about the violence, and here I think they're wrong. That is to say, they should feel uncomfortable. But that is an argument against the movie. This idea, I think, that we see a lot now that because a scene in a movie makes you uncomfortable, it makes it bad. Here she is saying, like, lean in towards the uncomfortable. That's the point a lot of the time. And it's not just rated on, like, I feel good. I feel bad.
3: Right. I think it's this beginning of an era where we are pushing boundaries. and. Culturally, we're pushing boundaries. The movie came out in 1967, and we're seeing a lot of big changes. Thurgood Marshall becomes the first black uh, justice on the Supreme Court. Um, The interracial marriage is declared constitutional by the Supreme Court. Uh, Muhammad Ali is stripped of his heavyweight title for refusing to go in the army. Like, these are very big things. Rolling Stone magazine comes out this year. You know, um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is in the theaters. In the Heat of the Night. You know, we're in this time where... Things that have been under the surface are now seeping to the top. And I feel like it's a time of change. It really is. And I think, as with most things, people reject change. If it's unfamiliar, it's bad.
0: You are basically leading into my second Pauline Kael quote. That oh, wow. That was so brilliant. Because what she said was, and this, again, applies to everything. I think it applies to so much more than Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde. Quote, to ask why people react so angrily to the best movies and have such little negative reaction to the poor ones is to imply that they are so unused to the experience of art in movies that they fight it.
3: Wow. These films that break through, you know, 2001 is very much like this as well. It's making so many bold choices that I wouldn't even say it's a great movie, but it's the most important film that we kind of have. These are these movies that go beyond filmmaking, and they're basically saying, this is what we can do with the form.
0: Yeah, it's starting a style. I mean, the editing embodying and Clyde. You know, Dee Dee Allen, fantastic editor, really shapes the way that we see cinema going forward. She's doing things like at the halfway point of this film, which I think is a point where this entire film kind of pivots around, when they pull off the big caper, they drive to Oklahoma. It's the only caper they really do that works in yeah. the entire film. Uh, And she's cutting between this chase, this really long extended chase as they're driving across the border, and then people reflecting on it. She's cutting back to the cops as they're getting their picture taken, as they're becoming famous, and she's commenting on all of that. She's entwining these two things, these two hunts for fame. And it's brilliant, and it's jarring, and she's cutting the music around, and she's trying to make you feel uncomfortable and to pay attention to what this movie's trying to tell you.
3: I totally agree, and I feel like that kind of editing – really kind of brings out the film, whereas somebody else would have directed this film in a very simple way. You wouldn't have seen that idea of the cops and the people like, oh, he was right there and he hit me and he said this. There is that energy in this movie that feels like we all want fame and to a certain extent don't want to work for it. I mean, you know, it's sort of like they were very content to just be a part of a robbery, not, they didn't stop it. They were just a part of it. And you know, and it, it's all about, we all want to get out of our lives. And sometimes the easiest way to do it is crime.
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of that scene where Bonnie and Clyde go to the movie theater pretty early on, right after Clyde first kills a guy, which, oh, by the way, by the way, wait, I'm so excited. During our Swing Time episode, I kept saying, man, I wish Busby Berkeley was in the canon though. I forgot because of this scene in Bonnie and Clyde, Busby Berkeley is in the canon. When they're watching those <laughs> coins dance, oh yeah, that's a Busby Berkeley movie. Not only is that a Busby Berkeley movie, not only is that Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty-three. The voice singing is Ginger Rogers from Swing Time, and oh, oh my God, you don't see her face. I'm so excited to show you this I right now. It. Have you ever seen Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty-three? No. So in this movie, the song goes on. I want to play a clip from later on in the song because Ginger Rogers does something for real, not a, not like a stunt but it proves why she's an Oscar-winning actress and the best thing ever and deserves to have her name first in all the song movies, she sings We're in the Money backwards.
3: Wait, what?
1: Here we in, hey, the
3: I I can watch this (laughs) forever. (laughs) Wow.
0: It's like this Busby Berkeley movie just has a stroke right in the middle of it. It's incredible.
3: (laughs) That would have freaked me the hell out when I saw that. that. Wow.
0: And that's what they're watching when they're in the theater. And you have Clyde just freaking out that he killed a guy, blaming C.W. Moss for it. But when you look at Bonnie, she doesn't even care. She's just in the movie. She's grinning. And when she goes home, she starts singing that song the right way, the forward right. way. And imagine that she's a chorus girl. She is living in a movie. She's been acting since this movie starts. And she doesn't really stop until the halfway through. You're a dumbass thing. I like i kill you. Shh. If
1: you boys want to talk, why don't y'all go outside?
3: It's interesting you say that because I'm thinking about the scene when she goes home to her family reunion and that is shot in a very interesting way, unlike the entire film. Um, and I wonder if that's her perspective of her life. It's shot very gauzy, almost as if you would shoot a flashback. That's the way I kind of look at it. it you know, yeah,
0: it's ghostly.
3: Yeah. And I was wondering, is that her perspective like this time? Cause it, it's not a flashback. It's, in the forward momentum of the film. I didn't know what they were trying to achieve with that, but then you said that it kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's eerie, right? That yeah. they're on these sand dunes, they don't look like any terrain we've seen in the film so far. She's dressed in all black. It looks like she's at her own funeral. Really. Yeah. It's this moment of I mean, to be honest, you go sit down and you see Bonnie and Clyde, you know you're watching a snuff film. You know, you know how right. this ends. You know they die. And the biggest gunfire battle of bullets ever I mean so big that in real life when they tried to embalm them they couldn't even get the embalming liquid to stay in them because they had so many holes in them you know you're watching a snuff film but what you're watching in that scene you're talking about is Bonnie realizing for sure that she's gonna die because right before this you've had the, the undertaker played by Gene Wilder who gets this by the way movie reveal where it's like he turns around and it's Gene Wilder like it's a big deal and it was his movie debut nobody knew who it was like the producers hadn't come out yet but you're like Gene Wilder is here
3: by the way he's in full producers mode in this film like (laughs) acting the exact same way uh but also it's a scene stealing performance and it's so small but it is it's a it's a great comic scene again just showing this movie on all these levels that could do a fully comedic performance in this film
0: exactly and his Undertaker is just doing exactly what Warren Beatty is doing he's trying to look cool and confident in front of his girlfriend yeah it's the same thing but he says that he's an Undertaker and that's when you just see Bonnie's mood shift right she decides she has to go home and then we have this strange romantic music over the scene where she's running in the fields as, as Warren Beatty is chasing after her and the shadow rolls over them and they get put in this darkness that starts to really creep into the movie except for the, the sand dune scene and the, I actually pulled a clip of the mother talking because the way the mother talks, it just feels like everybody's talking to her through the grave. Like, I'm, I'm going to well, get really pretentious if that's
3: No, okay. I love it. Because, I, I mean, I was thinking, is, is she at her own funeral?
0: It feels like it, right? Yeah. She's looking at all these, these children, these other lives she could have had that didn't have.
3: Right. It, did it even really happen?
0: Exactly. And you hear in this moment kind of the death of bluster for both her – and Warren Beatty, you know, this is the moment where Warren Beatty's so used to sweet talking everybody, and her mom is not buying it, and you just hear them both collapse. Our
1: right, time's over. I can tell you that. Why? Well, just the other night, uh, me and Bonnie were talking, and uh, we were talking about the time we we're gonna settle down, and get us a home. And uh, she says to me, she says, "You know, I couldn't bear to live more than three miles from my precious mother." Now, how'd you like that, Mother Parker? I don't believe I would. I surely don't. You try to live three miles from me and you won't live long, honey. You best keep running, Clyde Barrow. And you
0: know it. Bye, baby. Like, to sound really pretentious for a minute, I think that this movie is pulling from the Odyssey because they're on this extended adventure. Mm -hmm. They can't go home again. And you have these Oracle figures, really, who show up, and they say these faded, gigantic things. You have these characters who seem larger than life. I mean, this is mythology. Right. To the point that, and here's where I get crazy, but, like, when Bonnie and Clyde get really shot up but they haven't died yet and C.W. Moss is driving them around – he pulls by this river and he's kind of the chauffeur of the dead. and I'm thinking he's like they're like river sticksing it right now. Yeah, they're like yeah. it seems like this movie knows that that's an illusion that it's making. And usually, I feel like I'm being incredibly pretentious, but this movie's so crafted that I think I think I think it's there.
3: I, I am kind of seeing that entire sequence now in a totally new light, and I feel like it works. Now, I will say, at one point, not to burst any bubbles, oh, no. but um, <laughs> because I think a lot of people saw a lot in this film, and Arthur Penn has said, you know, people have told us that Bonnie and Clyde were, you know, was really about Vietnam or about police brutality or Lee Harvey Oswald or about Watts. And after a while, I just took to shrugging and going, "Yeah, if you think so." Uh, he goes, "I just think it's <laughs> about Bonnie and Clyde," but I think that the script really does take you on this journey because it's not just about Bonnie and Clyde. You could make this movie very simply and it would probably be a huge success that would have gotten reviewed very positively. And they're doing choices. That gauzy film style is a choice. That's not something they stumbled upon. You know, they are making big choices here and whether or not they understand that they're influenced by this or not, uh, I think that they are because they're trying to build something bigger, they're falling into it. So I, I, I agree with you. I don't agree with Arthur Penn. Yeah,
0: no, I yeah, screw you, Arthur Penn, just because you did these amazing <laughs> things. Like, you talked at the beginning of this episode about Warren Beatty's Clyde Barrow being so happy that Bonnie has put his story in the paper, that Bonnie right. understands him and has made him important. Well, this film opens up with him telling her story. You know, I kind of use the word pivot in the middle because I feel like this film is perfectly structured where it's doing – it goes in one way and it goes out with the exact reverse scenes of it. She's jumping on his lap and they're not getting anywhere in the beginning. Then he tells her 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 life story. Then you see these FDR posters. And on the way back out, you see the FDR posters. He tells her life story. And they also do finally manage to bone. And – oh, God, I have two sound clips I want to play. I'm, like, sound clip crazy. I love it. The first one I want to play is just him telling her life story because this reminds me – so much of The Wizard of Oz.
1: You went to school, of course, but you didn't take to it much. Because you was a lot smarter than everybody else, so you just up not quit one day. Now, when you were 16, you, 17, there was a guy who worked in a... In a cement plant. Right, cement plant. And you, and you liked him, because he thought you were just as nice as you could be. And you almost married that guy. But then you thought, no, you didn't think you would. So then you got you your job in a cafe. And now you wake up every morning, and you hate it you just hate it you get on down there and you put on your white uniform pink. it's pink. Uh-huh. and them truck drivers come in there to eat your greasy burgers and they kid you and you kid them back but they're stupid and dumb boys with the big old tattoos on them and you don't like it and they ask you for dates and sometimes you go but you mostly don't because all they're ever trying to do is get in your pants whether you want them to or not so you go on home and you sit in your room and you think now when and how am I ever going to get away from this
0: And now you know. I mean, that is Dorothy and the fortune teller. That is Dorothy hearing you're going to go on an adventure. That is a guy figuring out what she needs to hear and being right.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, it's an interesting thing to feel like there's people who have emotional intelligence and people who have, like, actual intelligence. And I feel like he connects to her so deeply. And he connects so much to an emotional uh, need in all of the characters, his you know his brother and uh, and Moss, that, that that's why they're following him. It's not because they're gonna get rich. It's because he's fulfilling them on a that hole that that can't be filled by anything material. But he sees them. It's almost like the way that people follow a cult leader or something yeah. like that. You know, he has that kind of energy. It's like I know you. And come with me because we will go on this journey together.
0: Yeah, it is a genuine love story. And, you know, we know how this journey ends. It ends in, I think I counted, 23 seconds of a shootout. Mm-hmm. That's the ending. I mean, they do the shootout. The movie ends. No one says a word. And what's so fascinating that I just realized on this watch is that the movie, I'm talking about the bracketing, it starts exactly the way that it ends with this kind of rhythmic sound. The only difference is it's a photo camera at the beginning. It goes from photo camera to bars to gunfire, but it's all just this percussion sound. And, you know, it's a movie about media and violence, and they're bracketing it exactly that way. And I want to play that, too, because it blows my mind. And as I play it, I want people to picture the photos that we're seeing in the beginning because we're seeing – Warren Beatty's character grow up. We're seeing Faye Dunaway grow up. And then you get all these subliminal, strange, unsettling photos inserted in there. You get a guy eating watermelon with a knife in his teeth. You see a gas pump that looks like a noose. You see people holding guns. And it's this creeping sense of disaster. So here's just a bunch of drumming.
3: Just to put some context on the ending, because I also was really taken by the way this film ended, uh, here's Gene Hackman talking a little bit about the ending. It is very powerful, the way it's cut at the end, uh, where it's just suddenly over, which is a very brave choice. I think probably the conventional choice would have been to pull back and show the overall scene
2: and, and bring up the music and, and all that, but it's not done that way. It's done in a very brave way.
0: Which brings us to the natural question. Is there a Simpsons of, of this? And yes, there is. And The <laughs> Simpsons does the bloody, violent ending.
3: Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Bonnie, I love you. Will you marry me? I don't know. I guess I'm
0: just looking for a little more excitement.
2: Mm, okay. But if you change your mind, you know where I'm at.
0: By the way, your Bunny and Clyde cultural touchstone moment Late '60s cultural touchstone scene; these two things come together in 1968 when people float Michael J. Pollard for president. I'm not kidding. They pulled a harembe. They pulled a harembe on Michael J. Pollard. A bunch of like student groups on different campuses were like Michael J. Pollard for president. Even though he was too young, he was still in his 20s. He wasn't even old enough. And they had a theme song. You want to hear it?
3: Yes. Saw him as
2: CW Moss. What? This hippie is a uh, really boss.
1: He'll change our image and he'll give us power. Cause this little giant is the flower of the hour. What do you think? I'm against him, and I'm the only candidate who is against him.
3: Whoa, that is amazing. And I would have voted for him hundred percent. I would have gotten to the polls. Um, I think before we wrap this up, I want to just talk about the violence. We've talked a lot about it in a general context, but specifically the blood that you see in this movie, it's, Apparently, for the time, 1967, incredibly intense. And there are scenes here that are insane. The ending scene, like we just talked about, you know, it is, you see a fragment. Of Clyde's scalp flying off, which was an homage uh, to the JFK assassination. Oh. They wanted to kind of show that. And, you know, uh, JFK was assassinated not far from where Bonnie and Clyde grew up. But, like, they were doing these little subtle things. It's the first movie to ever use squibs, which is a commonplace now, which is basically like a blood bag that you put under your clothes. that has a little electrical charge. And then blood comes oh, out.
0: Have you ever been squibbed?
3: I've been squibbed. It hurts. Like really? uh like a paintball shot. It you feel something cuz it's a little explosion on your uh, your chest. And you're always nervous because you are being wired up to have an explosion happen <laughs> on your chest. I think one of the things though that makes the violence intense is not visually what's going on, but auditorily what's happening. And Warren Beatty is a little evasive about really mythologizing this movie or telling a lot of behind-the-scenes stories, but I did find um, how he was inspired to create the sounds of the gunfire, and it was actually inspired by the movie Shane. He thought the gunfire in Shane was so intense, and he went and met with the uh, sound designer of that film. One thing that really interested me were the gunshots
1: in Shane. I said, I don't understand how you do it. it, Well, he told me, we got some trash cans, he said. And you put a shotgun into the trash can, and you just blow the hell out of it. And it just spreads all over the soundtrack. And it's just, it's great. And I said, man, that's a good idea. So we did that. We put the shotgun into the trash cans, and every time we fired a shot. Now, you realize in telling you this, I'm ruining the gunshots for you,
3: but that's fine. so even there, he doesn't want to tell you how it was done, but that sound, that power of it, and Warren Beatty, I think, in one of the first screenings was going up to the sound booth, going, you have to raise the volume of this gunshot. And I think it, again, puts forward that idea, like, show or don't tell, but he's showing through the sense of the violence is coming through so hard in the, in the sound of the fire that it's even more scary than most films even now because the gunshots do feel real.
0: They do. And also us just caring about Bonnie and Clyde makes our violence feel so awful. I mean, this is a violent, violent, horrible period in American life that I think reflects just as badly as the quote-unquote good people who weren't robbing banks. I mean, when Bonnie and Clyde got shot up and they took their car into town with their bodies still in it, the people who lived in this town in Louisiana We're like reaching in. They were grabbing the glass. They were cutting pieces of Bonnie's hair off. They were cutting pieces of her dress off. Somebody actually tried to cut off Clyde's ear. Somebody tried to cut off his trigger finger. I mean, it's like, this is who we are. We love fame.
3: Absolutely. And we also have to kind of point a finger at the fact that this is a time where crookery, that's a new word I'm inventing, crookery. How
0: do you spell that? (laughs) Is that with an I
3: or an O? I'm going to say with an E-Y. Ooh. Yeah. Um, Is... Apparent, And even in that little scene where they visit that farmhouse and they're staying there overnight and then they meet the guy who's been evicted by the bank, the banks are foreclosing on all of these houses so much so that the banks are going bankrupt. Like there's a greed going on in this movie that you're seeing a lot of different sides of it.
0: Yeah, and the solution we see in that scene at the farmhouse is that Clyde gives the man whose farm was taken and the man who worked on the farm his gun. And they shoot the bank sign. I mean, this movie is saying violence is our only way out of this. It's the only thing that's going to make you happy. That's the first time these guys smile.
3: And now kind of brings us to the point where we go, all right, so this movie is 42 on the list of the AFI's top 100 films of 2007. Do we feel like this is an appropriate place for this movie? It's about, about middle
0: okay with it. I really loved the movie rewatching at this time. I love, love, loved it. I loved it so much. <laughs> I lurfed it. I lurfed it the way Bonnie loves Clyde. Yeah, I don't know if I need it to be in the 30s. I think if it was in the 60s, it'd be too low. I'm all right hovering where we are.
3: I think it's interesting because I've been going back and forth about where I put 2001. And I feel like 2001 and this movie go hand in hand in a certain way because they... Uh, brought forth a new style of filmmaking that has influenced so many things. When I was watching this movie, I was like, "Oh wow!" Without Bonnie and Clyde, there's no Dukes of Hazard, which is, you know, from an artistic standpoint, the furthest you can get. You know, like this well, is yeah,
0: a the guy who plays Frank Hammer is Uncle Jesse in the Dukes of Hazard. I
3: know, and I, <laughs> and and I was, and I just love that idea that this film inspired so many people and so many. Mothers and fathers showed this to their kids, and those are the kids uh, who are making movies now. And I feel like this is the door that opened to them. I talked to so many people who love this movie and have such a connection to it from their childhood. So I do feel like this may be the perfect spot for films that blew open the door for so much more. You know, I think that 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 is an interesting way to kind of look at this, you know, it definitely is a great movie, but now it's almost been trumped by people who've combined comedy and violence and drama. I mean, I think Quentin Tarantino is a perfect example of someone who really dives into this in a major, major way. And and has kind of blown this out in, in a way that for me was my first exposure to this, but without this film, there's no Quentin Tarantino.
0: Yeah. And I think Tarantino does this really well, but Bonnie and Clyde shows you that you can't do this without grounding it and characters who really right. love each other.
3: That's why I go back to my true romance idea. True romance, I think Tony Scott is a great director as well. And that movie, I love Alabama and Clarence. I think they are an amazing couple. And you watch them make all these bad decisions. And you watch them get deeper and deeper into trouble. And they didn't need to get in that trouble but you buy it. They are, you know, they are the Bonnie and Clyde of the Hollywood and cocaine. You know, they're not they're not robbing banks, but they're doing like a weird cocaine deal, you know, in the middle of uh, crappy L.A. So I think we're both in agreement. This movie is properly placed.
0: It is. But you know what? I'm going to give the last word to a guy named E.W. Jones, who is the real-life person that C.W. Moss was based on. Because after Bunny and Clyde comes out, he's still alive. He gives an interview to Playboy magazine, and this is his review of it. He said, The only thing that ain't plumb silly the way they play it is the gun battles. Them was real enough to almost make me hurt. The way they showed Clyde is all wrong. Clyde never bragged. Moss was a dumb kid who ran errands and did what Clyde told him. That was me, all right but they messed up showing Moss as driver of the car so much and having him fix on it all the time. We'd junk a car if anything went wrong with it and get another one. That Bonnie and Clyde movie made it look all sort of glamorous, but like I told them teenage boys sitting near me at the drive-in showing it, take it from an old man who was there, it was hell.
3: I mean, there's nothing else to say. That's (laughs) amazing. And I love that he was interviewed about this movie. The best review we could possibly get.
0: And that he was murdered, but that's another thing. (laughs)
3: Oh, man. Sorry. Save that for another podcast. Um, Okay. It's time to roll the die. (gasps)
1: Here we go.
3: The hundred-sided die is out. It is so far made amazing connections for us. We trust it implicitly. Let's take a look at where we are going. It is 86. 86. 86 is, are you ready? Uh Uh-oh. Very interesting. Platoon. (gasps) I am – and this is actually a good connection because this is another movie that showed violence in Vietnam in a way that had yet to be seen.
0: All right. Bring it on, Platoon. Did I just say Platoon weird? Bring it on, Platoon.
3: (laughs) All right. So we're talking Platoon. It's a war movie. It's not the only war movie. We have plenty more to go to. But I thought to maybe get us in the mindset of war, uh, listeners could give us a call next week and give us their best uh, gun or explosion noise. Uh, just call in with whatever sound that you'd like to make, uh, and we will play it. The best gun or explosion noise. <laughs>
0: wow, you know, Paul, you're a madman, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, in the spirit of Oliver Stone, okay.
3: <laughs>
0: I mean, Michael Winslow, I really hope that you are listening right now. I would love to... A wall-to-wall Michael Winslow madness. Paul, this is a mad idea, but I think this is appropriate to get into the mind of Oliver Stone. Well,
3: I'm down, and I was going to disqualify Michael Winslow from participating, but you know what? All bets are off. Michael, call in. We'll use it.
0: (laughs) So call at 747-666-5824. All
3: right, we will see you next week for Platoon. And remember, if you like the podcast, please uh, rate and subscribe. Tell your friends, uh, tell your enemies, and uh, follow us on Twitter at unspooled. Uh, as we continue the conversation about bonding clients. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da ba ba ba.